1: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny and I'm going to be bringing you homeschool insights and delights from our household, where God dwells in every nook and cranny, except for today, because he's busy with the bride and groom and their nuptial preparations. Here, life could do with being more ordinary. We're busy with guests in the house and flowers and dresses and food everywhere. And I'm entering my final hours of being plain old mum. Each week, I cajole and tempt an unsuspecting, hugely fascinating person to join me for part of the show. I offer them social media exposure and they come willingly to talk about aspects of family life, which usually relate to homeschooling and always speak straight to the heart of parents who place the responsibility of child-rearing above their highest joy. I'm getting jittery and nervous as the moment of vows and promises approaches, so I may talk faster than usual. After the break, I've managed to tie down a roaming guest, Jennifer Miller, who's in the middle of an open-ended world tour with her husband and four children. Stay tuned to find out where she is as we speak about what she's been up to since the mum Bus. Since this is a once-in-a-lifetime day, I'm going to be nattering on about Christian marriage, mother-in-law tips, extra family to stay, and pretty stuff like dresses, makeup, and hair. I'm drinking chamomile tea to mellow me out, so let's get started so I'm not rushing around like a wild thing later on the afters. On the subject of rushing around and taking a little veer off into the land of subconscious, especially when a special occasion looms and the mind runs amog, I had a marathon dream about the wedding the other night. The rehearsal had happened, without a hitch, at the church I was expecting it to be. But when the next day came, I showed up at a different venue where several weddings were taking place and we'd been assigned a space for our ceremony but couldn't get in for a while. I began looking around at our guests who filled the spacious lobby and there ahead of me was a mirror, which clearly showed I wasn't dressed for a wedding at all. So with all of 10 minutes or so to spare, I went home to change. I still wasn't in the dress I'd bought with carefully matching shoes and other accessories when I returned significantly late. But who knows what was going on in my mind during a dream. I have no control, that's all I know. My lovely cowboy was waiting patiently in the lobby pacing and muttering. And all the best seats were taken when we went in and we sat to one side of the balcony halfway up. That's where we were. We were sort of in a balcony. It was very bright and there was an organ at one end and I could vaguely see our organist friend sitting there playing on an instrument she hadn't even practiced on before. There was a lot of bustling going on around us and I saw that there were loads of people in wedding attire And I'm talking wedding dresses and groom's tuxes. What was going on? And was Lindsay in the melee? There was a show going on. That's what was going on. Theatre friends were playing in the gallery. They were spoofing the ceremony and pretending to be the bride. Very confusing and very noisy, as dreams usually are. Finally, the music changed and the bride entered just through a door. Nothing fancy. And she looked harassed, no shoes, and she had a two-year-old in her arms. And I thought, in my dream, poor thing, she was hoping that wouldn't happen. That being goodness knows what, but probably being saddled with one of her nieces or cousins twice removed. As I woke up, I was thinking, what was the point of the rehearsal the evening before? It was a nightmare. The mind is a tricky character, don't you think? Because of what today is, I decided to look around the internet and find something appropriate to talk about concerning Christian matrimony. It's a covenant we enter into with our spouse and God, just as God entered into a covenant with Abraham in the Bible that he would have offspring as countless as the stars, even though he was currently over 100 years old and his wife was up there too, and they'd had no children yet, and lots of land stretching far and wide. It's in Genesis chapter 15, verses 9 to 10, that we find the account of the blood covenant Abram and God made with the sacrifice of animals. We don't have to slaughter animals today, but as you'll see, there's a lot of symbolism going on out of the Old Testament sealing of an oath when we come to Christian weddings. After splitting the sacrificial animals precisely in half, In the Old Testament, they arranged opposite each other on the ground, leaving a pathway between them. And the two parties making the covenant would walk from either end of the pathway, meeting in the middle. And this meeting ground between the animal pieces was regarded as holy ground. There, the two individuals would cut the palms of their right hands and then join their hands together as they mutually pledged a vow promising all of their rights, possessions, and benefits to each other. Next, the two would exchange their belt and an outer coat, and in so doing, take some part of the other person's name. In Abram's case, he became Abraham, taking part of the word Yahweh. Sound familiar? It is. Let's take a closer look at a traditional Christian wedding. Family and friends of the bride and groom are seated on opposite sides of the church to symbolize the cutting of the blood covenant, the sacrificial animals. I've felt a little like a sacrificial animal myself these last few weeks, all the frenzy, the tugging of loyalties, the tactful exchanges between the families. These witnesses, the family, friends and invited guests, are all participants in the wedding covenant, and many of them have made sacrifices to help prepare the couple for marriage and to support them in their holy union. The center aisle represents the meeting ground, the holy place, the pathway between the animal pieces where the blood covenant is established. I don't know if I'm loving the symbolism of me being part of the killed animal pieces, but oh well, it's just symbolism. In Bible times, the parents of the bride and groom were ultimately responsible for discerning God's will concerning the choice of spouse for their children. We don't choose our spouses for our children today, though sometimes I wish we could. But we raised our son with a biblical worldview that has influenced him, we hope, in his choice of a lifelong partner. The wedding tradition of seating the parents in a place of prominence right down in the front is meant to recognize their responsibility for raising them the right way, laying down rock-hard foundations. Earthly marriages are a picture of the church's union with Christ. The Song of Songs aptly portrays this in a beautiful love poem that my son has chosen to have sung during his wedding this afternoon. Arise, my love. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. God sent his only son to establish a relationship with his creation. Christ called and came for his bride, the church, as the groom. For this reason, the groom today, my son enters the church auditorium first and his bride comes in and publicly accepts him. When she enters with her father, it symbolizes his approval of the choice she's made. And when the priest asks who gives this woman, the father responds, her mother and I. These actions and words demonstrate the parents' blessing in the union and the transfer of care and responsibility to the husband. My son all of a sudden will bear the full responsibility of another Person. Happily, Lindsay and Simon will not have to cut their hands before joining together their bleeding right palms, forever promising all of their rights and resources to the other. I don't think the white dress would survive a splattering of blood. Later this afternoon, they'll face one another to say their vows. They'll join their right hands and publicly commit everything they are and everything they possess in a covenant relationship. They'll leave their families, forsake all others, and become one with their spouse. And that's the cue for me to burst into tears. I'm sure I will. Remember the exchange of belts in the biblical covenant, thus taking some part of the other's name? Well, the rings are an outward symbol of the couple's couple's inward bond. A ring was used as a seal of authority in the Old Testament times. So when the couple wears a wedding ring, they're demonstrating their submission to God's authority over their marriage. They recognize that God brought them together and that he is intricately involved in every part of their covenant relationship. And if that's not enough pressure, this small gold band bears a lot of weight in the symbolism arena. It represents also resources, the giving of their wealth, possessions, talents and emotions to each other in marriage. Lindsay's wearing a veil. Not only does it show her modesty and purity, but also her reverence for God. And it reminds us of the temple veil, which was torn in two when Christ died on the cross, thus removing the separation between God and man, giving believers access into the very presence of God. Since Christian marriage is a picture of the union between Christ and the church, we see another reflection of this relationship in the removal of the bridal veil once the vows have been made. Through marriage, the couple now has full access to one another, 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 4. When the priest officially declares the bride and groom, husband and wife, their covenant begins. The two are now one in the eyes of God. And after all the photos and adrenaline, we will need some food to sustain us. So the ceremonial meal will commence. The guests at the wedding reception are there to share with the couple in the blessing of their vows to one another by covenant. If you didn't fully understand the wedding ceremony as a holy act of worship before I started spouting, hopefully you do now. And before we go on a break, which is coming up really soon, I want to introduce my guest who is in the middle of traveling the world with her family. Jennifer Miller has been on my show before. You may remember her on The Mama Boss back in 2011, show 86. Go back and listen to it. It's great. You may also have heard her on my New Year show for 2013, too, so go listen to that podcast. And um, she's currently in the Southern Hemisphere, having spent 10 months at the equator. They loved everywhere they visited except for one place, and you'll have to listen to find out where that was. Jennifer inherited her traveling bug from her parents, who gave her what she describes as an uncommon childhood. We're going to be talking about third-culture children how she homeschools seriously on the road. It's not just a vacation and the adventure of winging it. Jennifer and her husband are not strangers to this lifestyle. They've spent the last five years or more in uninterrupted travel, choosing to invest most of their time and money in memories. And so why don't you join us for a lively, wonderful conversation as soon as I get back from this short
0: break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
0: Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny.
1: Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today on my show. And first off, I want to ask you, where are you?
2: Well, this morning we are in Gulf Harbor, New Zealand, which is just a bit north of Auckland. It's in the kind of Auckland metro area. Mm Mm -hmm. and we're staying with friends who live right on the edge of the sea, and I'm looking out the window. It's beautiful. I can see the tide going out.
1: Wow. Um, So what time of year is it for you?
2: Uh, It's fall here because, of course, we're in the southern hemisphere, so Mm -hmm. the seasons are reversed, and we're going from late summer into fall in the next couple of weeks. It'll be our first set of reversed seasons ever, so that's kind of fun.
1: Really? And so you you got to New Zealand and you've got fall going on, so what's the weather actually like? Is it is it warm or
0: cool?
2: well, to us, it's cool because we've spent the last 10 months at the equator, which is, of course, unbearably hot mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> but uh, in reality, it's pretty warm during the day. It'll get up to 23 or 25 degrees Celsius and at night down to maybe 15. So it's, it's a nice uh, temperature for getting out and doing things. OK, so how
1: do you adapt? You're on the road all the time. So what about clothes? That's one of the things <laughs> I always think about. What do you take with you?
2: Well normally we have three outfits each and that's about it but mm-hmm. everything we had of course was summer related so the first thing we did when we got to New Zealand was head straight to the merino wool outlets and get sweaters and extra socks and things like that so mm-hmm. we're we're kind of trying to acclimate and some days that goes better than others right now. <laughs> and
1: what's your plan for staying there? How long are you going to be there?
2: We're going to be here six months okay. um We've got a little camper van that we're traveling in because we wanted to be able to explore the islands well. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of a, a mobile home, I guess, of sorts. All
1: right. How did you <laughs> I'm thinking, OK, so you're I am thinking okay so you i do not know where your base is in America. Were you living in Vancouver before you made this trip or were you over on the East Coast?
2: Um, We were living in New Hampshire, but we sold our house and everything we owned. So we don't have a base right now. When we finish in a couple of years, we will build a house on a property that we have on Wolf Island in Canada. Okay.
1: So which way around did you go then to get to New Zealand? Did you go east or over? Um,
2: Well, this time we flew, we had been in the States and Canada for uh, a few months between. Um, overseas Johnson, and so we flew this time from Toronto mm-hmm. through Abu Dhabi to Bangkok and we were the last 10 months then in Thailand okay um, and well and not just Thailand most of Southeast Asia but we, we based ourselves in Thailand for six months and then the last four months or so we've been traveling forward with just our backpacks through um through the islands and through part of Indonesia Borneo so uh, how do you how do you travel do you travel by air mostly uh, we try not to because we don't love to fly. We tend to get sick when we fly, and it's just got such a huge carbon footprint. But in Southeast Asia, really the easiest way to travel is by the cheap AirAsia and Tiger Airway type carriers. So we have done a lot of short hops here, mm-hmm. uh, but we really prefer to travel overland and take our time. So 10 months in Thailand
1: in that area,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you, and you didn't, had, you didn't buy yourself any transportation. So how were you doing that?
2: um we live car free most of the time outside the united states in most of the world it's quite easy because public transport is good there are networks of bus systems it's set up for people who don't own cars because most people don't Mm -hmm. and if we wanted a car to do some private explorations it's very easy to rent one just for a day or a week and so we did that occasionally um but this summer when we flew from thailand to vietnam and took a little bit over a month coming back overland we did that without a car we just took our backpacks and Used public transportation and made our way home. Where do you live? I mean, where do you
1: spend the night? And you
2: know, really oh, down your head. <laughs> it depends on where we are. Some places we rent houses for a few months at a time. Um, we stay in hostels sometimes. We have stayed with uh, friends. We've got lots of friends in lots of places. We meet a lot of interesting people through our blog who invite us to stay. And in fact, right now the people we're staying with are people we've met through our blog. Really? um we have at periods camped when we were cycling in europe we carried tents with us and we camped we did the same through central america the first time we went there um so we're open to just about anything right now we have our camper van so there's never a housing crisis for us now so you bought that in new zealand when you arrived um yes we're we're renting it privately from someone here right and how long have you been in new zealand just about two and a half weeks so we're still kind of getting our feet under us, learning all of the things. You
1: came from Australia, is that right?
2: We came, yeah, well, sort of through Australia. We were only in Perth for about two weeks because um, it, we realized that the way the flights worked out to get from Indonesia to New Zealand, the best way was to go through Perth, and we mm-hmm. had friends there. And uh, we didn't expect to get to see Western Australia because it's so far removed from the East Coast, so mm-hmm. it was really kind of a treat to get some time to explore there. Yeah, and is that the first time you've been to yes, yeah. it is. We're going to go back. Yeah. Um, we've got about three months this summer out. Well, I guess it'll be winter here allocated to that. And we'll August to November, we hope to be back on the East Coast of Australia. Yes, ma'am. All right.
1: Goodness yeah. me. <laughs> you, now, you, you see, and you're very casual about how you're talking about going from country to country. And I know, <laughs> I know that you talk a little bit about worrying about the future brings anxiety but you know there has to be in my mind probably a certain amount of planning that's going on and you have a computer with you so could you tell us maybe some of the things that you do to prepare to go like from a merit when you left Toronto Mm
2: -hmm. how much
1: preparation had you done before your first
2: land? Well we had not done a whole lot we had we had hotels arranged in Bangkok for the first week that we were there to sleep off jet lag, but after that we really didn't know where we were going. When we early on in our travels we tended to plan a lot more, mm-hmm. um, because it, it gave us the confidence to not worry about how things would work out when we arrived in a place. But as we have traveled longer, um, we've just discovered that the often the best way to go is to turn up somewhere and then find appropriate lodging and, and work it out on the ground. Because for one thing, it's far less expensive. Anything that you find... Um, online marketed in terms of holiday homes or hotels is going to be 50% at least more than the local prices that you'll pay in places. And often the best things, the most interesting things aren't listed at all. So Mm -hmm. uh, when we got to Bangkok, we arranged to take the train down to um, Surat Thani and then we took a bus across to Khao Lak where we house hunted for a couple days and decided we didn't love it. So we took a bus further down to to Niang and we found a hotel on the beach where we stayed for a few days, rented a motorcycle and ran around checking out houses until we found one we liked. So I, that maybe isn't the, the answer you're hoping for on preparation. but
1: No, <laughs> it, it, like. it really was because it sounds as though that's how you do it. And, it I'm, is. and I'm a very organized person and I know you are because I've spoken to you and you were on the mother yes. bus and that was very, very well you know sort of worked out although it took you a lot longer than you had anticipated to do what you wanted to do in the in the mum of bus but Uh you know you write and you you know your your blog is constantly updated so you have to be organized to a certain degree
2: oh we're very organized we've just we we just have come to understand that the best way to arrange travel is to slow down a bit so that the organization organization and travel is only really massively necessary when you're in a hurry (laughs) you know when you've got connections to make if we have connections to make I will have everything you know planned down Mm -hmm. to the minute Um, but in general if if we can step back and slow our pace and be where we are more than trying to rush through a place then there's time for those things well
1: yes you said you spent several months in the Thailand area correct Mm -hmm. well and you said for 10 months you were you were kind of milling around in that area right
2: well, we were six months uh, based in Thailand, in which time we did um, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and part of Malaysia. Uh, and then we, left our, we let our house go there in early December. And we've been traveling just with our backpacks through uh, Malaysia and Indonesia since then, just through the islands of central Polynesia. So.
1: Okay, so tell me what that's like. because there's a lot of poverty. Tell, tell me what, what it's like.
2: Uh, in what capacity? The people, or the location, or well, the people, politically? Um, politically,
1: I don't know if I want to get into the politics. Okay, the people. Um, mm-hmm. um, the well, it's going to be completely different. You're not, uh, I don't know, city life. Are there? Are there? You know, sort of great freeways. I'm thinking of you walking here in my city with a backpack and. You know, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, so what are you walking through? Is it a lot of countryside, farmland?
2: Uh, In Malaysia? Malaysia and Indonesia are both characterized to me by their cities. And Singapore also is, of course, it's a city-state. And we... Frankly, we do not love Malaysian or Indonesian cities. If you can get out of the city into the countryside, Mm -hmm. um, we rented a car and road tripped from end to end on Borneo, then it's lovely. There are some absolutely beautiful things in the countryside. But the city culture is quite frenetic. Everything is based around central shopping malls, which really surprised us. I don't know why it surprised us, but it did. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, our family joke is whoever pinned the idea of commercialism on America has simply never been to an Asian city. (laughs) Uh, but the people themselves are absolutely lovely. They tend to, for us at any rate with a family, they tend to bend over backwards to help us and to figure out where we are from and what we're doing and where we're going and to point out interesting things for us to see. Um, we had some really lovely experiences in the interior of Sulawesi, which is the big sort of K shaped Island in the middle of Indonesia, uh, with families there, um, so, you know i don't know i think wherever you go you tend to find what you are and if you're open and looking for for other people and for those connections they find you
1: well i know the last time we talked you talked about um, doing your laundry and having to kind of hike <laughs> to the river and and yeah. and that uh, and how you in, in exchange for this kind of lifestyle you've had to give up certain things and you know, and it's worth it—well, worth it to you not to it have some of some of the, some of the um, what is what do you call them—the the, the luxuries of the kind of life that we live here in America. Um, so, you still feel that way?
2: I do. Yeah, and it's ha- a what, lot of work sometimes.
1: And what? But what's the adjustment when you come back to America? Do you uh, can you can you adjust to it easily, or do you say, "Oh, I really, you know, I prefer the other way"?
2: You know. One of the things traveling for a while that we've, that we learn continually is what an absolute blessing it is to be born with an American passport, you know, to a large Mm -hmm. degree being born into the first Western world is, is the luck of the draw Mm -hmm. and it is such a gift. And so, you know, I know people who tend to get really negative and really cynical about all the things that are wrong with America, the more they travel. And there are things um, that we don't love. And, you know, I'm Canadian, so I'm an expat to America anyway, but but I, I think that the message at the end of the day is just what a blessing, what a privilege it is to have access to those things. And and there is an adjustment period for us when we go home. Yes, the thing that, that most um, shocks us is just being able to read everything because we're used to oh, yeah. being illiterate most of the places that we are. And all of the choices, that tends to overwhelm us for a little while because you know when you go into a grocery store in most of the world, there'll be maybe two or three choices for a particular product, say ketchup, where in the United States, you'll have half an aisle. Yeah. and. That's you know those kinds of things are we just think wow there's all this choice, mm-hmm. uh, but it it takes me all of about two seconds to adjust to having a washing machine in the house. That I love that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure,
1: I'm sure. And so you're in, you're tra- you're traveling around, and you're, the people are wonderful. And I was going to say you don't speak the language. And what about currency? How how mm-hmm. do you prepare for
2: that? Um. Well, currency is no problem. Any ATM in the world will spit out the currency that you need. And many Mm -hmm. of them also give you the choice between American dollars and the local currency within the same ATM, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so that hasn't really been a problem.
1: Language was the other.
2: I was concerned when we came to Asia about language because everywhere else we've traveled thus far has been, um, I speak Spanish, English and French. And so everywhere we have been, one of those languages has been available. And we were aware that in Asia that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we've also gotten really good at creative communication and um, sign language. And, you know, if you smile and you try, people will smile and try right back. And even when we've had some difficult difficult moments trying to arrange, you know, I don't know what the example would be, anything really, lodging Mm -hmm. or tour guide or whatever, if you're just patient and if you smile it's okay. It works out. People find who they need to communicate with you. Maybe our best story was we were in the middle of nowhere in Thailand, literally staying at a guest house in a rice patty. And the people spoke no English whatsoever. And we spoke four words of Thai. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know how we were going to explain that we needed to have you know, a certain lodging arrangement because our kids are, are much bigger. Um, and this lady in the middle of this rice patty whips out her iPad and she looks up Google Translate, and she types in in Thai what she wants to say to us. Hits Translate, and it comes up in in English. Wow. And we just stood there and we looked at each other and we just laughed. And Tony took her iPad and he typed in, "We have four children, but they're all teenagers. They're too big to share beds with us, so we're going to need two cabins. Mm-hmm. Is this possible?" Push Translate right into Thai, handed it back, mm-hmm. and there w- and there was no crisis. And I thought, man, there are moments when you know technology is changing the world faster than we can possibly get our minds around it and it's just amazing that's a great story jennifer and we're going to have to go on a break on that one
1: but we'll be back in just a moment
0: how do you handle toddlers teens and tirades when homeschooling that's what we're working on now it's vivian McNitty, the sociable homeschooler and we'll be right back after these why do i feel so lousy why aren't my medications working Why can't my doctor figure me out? These are just a few of the questions Dr. Kevin Connors will be exploring in Dr. Kevin Connors Live every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on tuggynet.com. The author of the book, Help My Body is Killing Me, solving the connections of autoimmune disease to thyroid problems, fibromyalgia, depression, ADD, ADHD, and more. He'll dig into these and many other conditions to dissect the mechanisms of your problems. Giving God the glory and looking for answers to make you look and feel better. To make you feel whole again. For more on him, his book, and the show, check out UpperRoomWellness.com. Never be satisfied with a diagnosis. There is always a reason behind it. And if you can alter the mechanisms that led you down your current path, we can change your future. It's Dr. Kevin Connors, live, Monday nights at 9, 10 Central, here on tuggynet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian Mcnenny, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian Mcnenny.
1: I'm talking to Jennifer Miller, and she and her family are taking an open-ended world journey around the world. And they spent several months in Thailand and now in New Zealand, having come through Australia. And Jennifer, you talk about all of these countries when you were in um, Southeast Asia as if you're a walking atlas. It's just amazing <laughs> how you say, you know, one country and a string of islands here and that kind of stuff. So tell me, why are you doing this? What, what is the purpose behind traveling so much um, with your children?
2: Well, I it's twofold, I guess. Um First of all, it's been our family's dream to do this. I was raised traveling, not quite as extensively as, as we are now, but within North and Central America. And the very best years of my education were the ones where we were on the road. And so having lived through that as a child, I have a perspective on that as an adult that, that makes me less afraid of you know, the consequences for my kids because I was that kid and it was the best thing my parents did for me. Um, so part of it is is our, it's our family dream. And we really want to raise our kids to understand that there are lots of ways to live life and they can choose to do anything that they want to do and the secondary part of of our motivation is their educations and we're very committed to education at a high level and we Believe that one of the best ways to educate children is just to let them walk through the world a while. You know there are, there are a lot of efforts towards um, developing international curriculum and towards multicultural education and ways to draw in other perspectives into a, a mainstream Western education. And there is no need for any of that extra effort if you just take your children to some of those places and the things that you would normally have to talk and preach about a lot, you don't have to, uh, because they just live life among these other people, and the take-home message very quickly is that there is no them and us, it's we, mm-hmm. and the lines on the map are um, political and arbitrary to the, to the average person, yeah. and so the children are, are learning, you know, they're learning everything that they would in school because, of course, we educate as we go, but they also are learning all of these other things that they couldn't learn any other way, and so we're, we're thankful for that opportunity. Do you do any preparation before you go somewhere? Um, I mean, yes educational
1: no. preparation.
2: Yeah, Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, before we went to Vietnam for a few weeks, we spent, I don't know, most of the summer studying the Vietnam War and watching various documentaries and studying the various characters that, that we would encounter as we traveled. We learned a little bit about Pol Pot and the the horrible genocide that happened in Cambodia that when I wrote about it, my friend in America looked up in her children's um, school textbook and found one paragraph about it, which sickened her, you know? Um, so yes, we do do some, some angling of our education for what we're going to see because it's, you know, it's great to go somewhere and learn something. And of course there's value in that field trip. But if you can, um, if you can support that with, with some real studies, then it just builds the depth of knowledge for the kids. So we do think about that as we go.
1: You talk about being location independent in, <laughs> some of your, in some of your writing. And I know the last time you were on my show, we did discuss that a little. And I have um, a further question. Can somebody ca- become location independent deliberately? Or is it just happens for certain people who can take their job with them wherever they go?
2: Uh, Oh, no, of course, you can become location independent uh, intentionally. And most of the people that I know who are have done that they've converted their career from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. Um, We did that. My husband's job originally was not something I mean, he could work from home, but it wasn't as though he could be out of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So no, I think it's very possible to develop that. And um, there are loads of resources on the internet for people who are interested in developing a different skill set or applying the skills that they have in a different way. Now, you have a
1: course that you um, teach online or you did. Are you still doing something like that to help people, you know, rediscover redis- themselves and not be stuck and, you know, yeah. some of your philosophies that you have and passing that on?
2: Yeah, I'm actually right in the middle of, uh, of the spring edition of that right now. My friend Nancy and I teach that together mm-hmm. and um, her website is familyonbikes.org. I don't know if you know her, but... She and her kids cycled from Ushuaia or from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to Ushuaia, Argentina, and her boys are the youngest children to have cycled from tip-to-tip of the continent certified by Guinness. So that's kind of cool. Um, But she and I together teach this class on uh, discovering what your dream is and then breaking it down so that you can change your life and and do the thing that you dream of. And it's really fun to do because we meet a lot of very interesting people with very different dreams, and um, it's an adventure every time.
1: So I would think that if I was traveling all the time, I would be in vacation mode all the time. (laughs) How long did it take you to get out of vacation mode? Because I know you're not in vacation mode.
2: No, we're not. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Uh, and when I talk to other traveling families, they say the same thing as people will say, wow, it's great that you get to be on vacation for five years. And I just laugh like, yeah, not so much. Our life is exactly like everybody else's. It just happens in more places and in more languages. And when things go wrong, it's more frustrating because yeah. of those two things. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I don't know, not not having uh, you know, when you go on vacation, you have your budget that you've set of money that you're essentially willing to waste on your two weeks of on whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, for us, it's not that way. I mean, we're working as we go. Uh, we have to maintain our, our family budget. We have to maintain the school routines. We have to maintain our household routines. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. It, it didn't really take us any time at all to adjust to that because we we began traveling with that mindset. Yeah. Um, and and we do sometimes go on vacation mm-hmm. from our life, which sounds funny to people. Mm-hmm. And, and then people will say to me, well, what constitutes vacation for you? And I mm-hmm. said, if I don't have to cook or do laundry, that's vacation. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> so, yeah. it's a So it's a, a lifestyle and you went into it knowing that this was a lifestyle that you had chosen, you and your husband had chosen for your family.
2: Yeah, well, um, we intended to travel only for a year to begin with. Okay. And then it grew beyond that. But yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And your children are all still thrilled to be doing this?
2: Well, you know, they're kids, so some days they're thrilled and some days they're not. That was true when we lived in a regular house also. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, yes, when you talked, yeah, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, my daughter had an article on Boots and All this week about five reasons that parents should travel with kids. And I, I hadn't read it when she submitted it at all. I just saw it when it, it was published. And mm-hmm. she did a really great job of articulating um what travel has done for her and why she values it, and why she intends to to continue traveling as she becomes an adult and has her own family, and and our kids all will would tell you there are things that they miss. They miss their friends occasionally. They miss uh, American type things occasionally. They miss their grandparents. You know there there are things mostly people that we miss, mm-hmm. but they realize that if we lived in a stationary house. Um, there would be all these other things that they would miss. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot as a family is that to choose one life is to not choose an infinite number of others. And there's not a right or wrong answer to that. Each family has to make their own determination. Um, But to be conscious of the fact that when we make a choice, not just in lifestyle but in many other things, we're also not choosing lots of other things. And so to weigh those things out as a family...
1: Yeah, that and that's, that's what you did and um, you, you've spoken about, you know, giving up certain things, you know, for whatever it is that you want to do. And it might include mm-hmm. having to do your laundry in a river instead of in, a, in an automatic <laughs> washing machine. But, you know, sometimes. The, yeah, sometimes, so. but not at the moment. It sounds as though you're living... Um, in a much more now is new zealand would you it is a western country i know a western style country mm-hmm. is it um a, a lot of people say that it's kind of like america only 50 years ago
2: Um, Well, I've only been here two weeks, so I hesitate to make any big blanket statements about an entire country. But it reminds us very much of Canada more Mm -hmm. so than America, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, And yeah, it's a very first world, very modern country. There are very few people here compared to coming from Asia. That was the first thing we noticed. We wanted to know where everyone was. (laughs) Because huh. I, think, I think that the statistic is that there are 4 million people in New Zealand. Um, and for perspective, the city of Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia, has 10 million people. Really? Yeah. 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 So, you know, the population density is wildly different. But it's a very first world country. I've been able to find laundromats every time I've wanted one. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very easy, you know, because, of course, it's English speaking also. So for yeah. us, it feels very easy right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So... Um, do you have a favorite place in the world, or is each place you're in the favorite for that time?
2: Uh, no, each place is not our favorite for, for that time. There are a lot of places we love. And if you asked everyone in our family, you would get a different answer as to the favorite. I'm for sure. me, my favorite, hands down, without any question, is Guatemala. And uh, we will probably eventually split our time between Canada and Guatemala.
1: Well, you said that last time, and I wondered if yeah. that had changed. So, no. oh gosh, so Guatemala yeah. um, stands up for hard and strong against everything else that you've seen so far.
2: For me, yes, it does. Yeah, really?
1: that's that's amazing. Well, well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad of that in a way because it it just that's what you want to do. You're going to you're going to build your house in Canada eventually on some property that your parents have. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it's my parents' property. It's seventy acres that they mm-hmm. bought with mm-hmm. uh with the idea of it becoming a, a family legacy place. And mm-hmm. so we're we're happy mm-hmm. to be able to pick that up from them as they age and pass it on to the next generation, I hope. And so have you been back to Guatemala since you fell in love with it? Yes. Uh the we first fell in love with it winter of 2000. Well, I guess it would have been 2010, actually, probably mm-hmm. February 2010. And um, that later that year, in October of 2010, we flew back and we based ourselves in Guatemala and we lived there for six months in the highlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have not been back since then. No. Um, we, we are planning to go back as we work our way back towards North America. We will spend some time there again.
1: Good, good. Have you ever been anywhere and gone, oops, this is a mistake. I need to move on quicker than you anticipated?
2: You know, if you'd asked me that two months ago, I would have said no. But we absolutely hated Jakarta, which we have never had the experience of really, really profoundly disliking a place that we were before. Mm -hmm. I can always find something to enjoy. Jakarta was a nightmare. I absolutely hated it. It was filthy. It was polluted to an extreme that I have not seen anywhere else. There are 10 million people in the city, as I mentioned. So you can imagine the congestion and the smog and, Mm -hmm. and we just, we weren't prepared for that. I don't know what we thought Jakarta was going to be, but we did not think it was going to be that. And we were very happy to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um,
1: all right. We're coming close to the end of um, our second (coughs) segment together. And I'm going to see if you could just come back for about five or six more minutes. And um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the more formal aspect of of the homeschooling that you do, because it's a real sharp contrast between some of the things that you do and then this this living, their education. Mm. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay.
0: How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Girlfriended is on TuggyNet. And then be a part of Girlfriend It, the radio show. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central.
2: You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me.
0: Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriend It with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Togenet. And now back to your host, Vivian Mcnenny.
1: Well, Jennifer, um, what about college? Do you have a
2: child that's old enough to be in college? And if so, how are you doing that? Uh, I don't have a child that's old enough to be in college, but I do have one that's in college. Okay. <laughs> um, Hannah is uh, is 16, and she started this fall her, her university work because she's done with her high school work. But at 16, um, we didn't want to send her to a university for some pretty obvious social reasons. And also because we just enjoy her. We're not on the, in a rush to get our kids out the door. It's not a race to us. Um, but we also wanted her to continue her studies at the level that she was at. So we enrolled her in um, online classes through Oregon. Oregon State University. And so she's studying as we go, which has worked out really well with the exception of getting books. That has been a bit of drama, getting them shipped over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, sometimes we have to restructure things to allow for a proctored exam or something like that.
1: Yeah. So you said that she was ready for college. So obviously you do some formal schooling. I know you did it on the bus. Mm-hmm. So tell us about how you do that, how you incorporate that into your into a day.
2: Um. Okay, we are definitely not unschoolers in philosophy. Uh, I believe very strongly in a, in a parent-led and child considerate education and so that we have some definite standards for our children as they grow and we want them to be prepared educationally for anything that they might choose to do and if they choose to go to an ivy league university i want them to be fully prepared to do that if they have that capacity and so we have worked pretty diligently at um at developing their intellectual education alongside their real life experiences and so for our family that is, that takes us about four hours a day um four days a week is kind of what we've set aside for book work time now for my teenagers who are doing high school and college work they set their own schedules entirely I assign them their work they're given their courses which they help choose and they work at them and you know they have certain deadlines with me that they have to they have to manage but I, I don't micromanage their time because I think that's a very important thing for them to learn to develop is their ability to work independently and meet deadlines mm-hmm. so
1: and you talk about your children being third culture kids could you tell us a little bit about what that means
2: yeah that's somebody else's word but that it, it it means essentially children that um they they split their time between more than one or two cultures so uh for instance myself growing up i i split my time between canada and mexico and the united states and and what happens in a kid's head is that they that home um doesn't mean the same thing as it means to somebody who grows up in one house in one neighborhood in the central Indiana. Mm -hmm. And you begin to, you see things kind of more uh, you have many homes, you have many aspects of culture that, that help make who you are. And so your culture is one that's a blend really of, of several. And um, there, there are, there's kind of a community of adults who are third culture kids. And, and some people are very critical of their parents and that upbringing because they feel as though it has in some way shorted them and their ability to make connections. And other people like myself have the exact opposite reaction where we feel as though it was the very best thing our parents could have handed us. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, there's a sense of identifying with more than just your birth culture. So in your family
1: of um, children, mm-hmm. can you see any... Um, any signs of one of them wanting to be in just one place and not wanting to travel when they get older and you know sort of um, can direct their own lives completely independently Mm. of you or do you think we're all going to (laughs) that's a great
2: question um I don't know you know I I hesitate to make any big blanket statements about who my kids are either because I, I think we don't often know as parents who they're going to be and what they're going to do. We have a family joke that rebellion in our family would mean somebody becoming a lawyer in Manhattan um, (laughs) because it's kind of the antithesis of our lifestyle. But, you know, at this point, uh, for my teenagers, Hannah is... um, Hannah's kind of got one foot out the door. She intends, and is very vocal about the fact that she intends to continue traveling as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabriel, who's 15, is currently shopping for boats with his best friend in Canada because they have as firm a, a, a plan as you can have at 15 mm-hmm. to sail around the world when they get through with their university educations. Um our middle boy who's 12, he's he's a very different kind of guy. I, I don't know what he will do, but he talks about how he thinks being a tour guide would be a great job for him. Mm-hmm. And and he's right about that. Uh, and, our you know, our youngest is only 10, so who knows what he will do with his time. But, I, you know, I don't know. If they choose to be in one place, I will be absolutely delighted by that. That will be a great adventure for them. Um, there's yeah. no expectation on our end for our, our kids to, to continue traveling or not. Our Our big concern is that they um, that they do the thing that they love and that they dream of at every stage of their life, regardless of, of what that is. And
1: you have shown them that they can do that, that they can enjoy life when there are so many people who are, um, you know, feel that they're stuck in a nine to five terrible job, you know, for their pension. And, uh,
2: yeah. That's you know that's kind of the, the if if I was hoping for a take home message from the the overarching span of their 20 year childhood I, that would be it just that they have options that there's no there's no point in your life at which you you don't have a choice mm-hmm. sometimes you feel stuck but the reality is that if you're willing to become uncomfortable enough <laughs> you can become unstuck and you can do something else yeah
1: uncomfortable enough goodness what does that mean to you
2: um it usually means being stuck in a tent somewhere and hand washing that 's my most uncomfortable, but at the same time, some of our best memories have come out of those kinds of things yeah mm-hmm. and and you know the other side of uncomfortable enough is if when we were preparing to travel and my husband was working a full time job and we had a house and two cars and a normal life, um, uncomfortable enough was working the equivalent of two full time jobs to prepare to split our life from what it had been you know to break with your status quo whatever your status quo is takes Mm. a lot of work Mm. and a lot of time and sometimes you give up a lot of other things in that process to push hard towards your dream and Mm. so that was uncomfortable for two years Mm. well jennifer we've come to the end of our time i have so enjoyed
1: talking to you and isn't this this is amazing because you're so far away and you're so Mm -hmm. clear and um, we're able to do this um, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for making the you know for making the time for me. And you go ahead and you just have a wonderful day and yes. a wonderful. How long are you going to stay in New Zealand? Uh, till August. Until
2: August, and then you're going back through Australia. You said be in Australia for three months and then probably on to South Africa for the remainder of the year. Okay. That sounds
1: glorious to me. (laughs) And, um, you know, um, check in with Jennifer. Give us your
2: your, um, website where we can go find your current blog. Okay. Our website is called adventureproject.com and it's adventure with an E as if you combined the words education and an adventure. Okay, and you can go on there and you can read.
1: She writes beautifully. I must say, Jennifer, I love to read what you write. And your children are also, your daughter is writing as well. So, um, you know, go on there and and look around and be inspired. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Vivian, for having me. Well, I'm back and we didn't talk about knitting. Jennifer admits to knitting absolutely anywhere she happens to be. But we did talk about her blogging and you can find her writings at www.edventure.com where she'll keep you updated. You could easily use her travels as a springboard for your homeschool. Jennifer Miller, my guest, is passing on her legacy of an uncommon childhood to her four children and everyone else in the world eager to read along with her. She and her husband have chosen to invest most of their time and money in memories that keep instead of cars, clothes, knick-knacks and noisy toys that rust or gather dust. They've been television-free for a decade and they steer away from fast food, preferring the social activity of cooking and everything that goes with it, including shopping in foreign markets. They travel without a car most of the time and live out of backpacks. As Jennifer said, to choose one life is not to choose another. Her stories inspire me to give up some of my stuff, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation this afternoon. I've spoken to friends who are mother-in-laws. You see, I'm obsessed with becoming a mother-in-law, and they all love the role, they tell me. Then there comes the caveat. You have to learn to smile and keep your tongue from wagging. Well, I can do the silent bit, but my face shows all my emotions as they crop up. And according to my youngest thoughts, I have a penchant for grump i go hmm <laughs> star barista and i went over to a friend's house to try on dresses for fun and also perhaps for ideas to wear to the big event today she has four daughters so there were lots of long and short dresses of all different colors we had an hour of fun and i came away with a little number that made me look as slender as a willow i wore it last night at the rehearsal After all the Old Testament symbolism that we listened to in the first part of this show, I thought I'd take a peek at some traditions and superstitions about weddings that have come to us down the years. These are not Christian traditions, I have to add. These are very secular and a lot of fun. If a bride tucks a sugar cube into her glove, it will sweeten the union and, I might add, fall on the altar floor when she takes her glove off for the groom to put her ring on her finger. A spider found in a wedding dress is good luck in Britain, but not in Texas. On the set of Dallas, one of the crew was bitten by a brown recluse and he's been in and out of hospital for a couple of weeks now. We don't want to find a spider in our wedding dresses here. Do you know why the groom carries the bride across the threshold? To show off his muscles? Or as a throwback to caveman days when he carried off his bride from another tribe? No. To bravely protect her from evil spirits lurking below. That must be the image of hell beneath heaven above. Who would have guessed that Saturday is the unluckiest wedding day according to English folklore yet it is the most popular day of the week to marry. Hmm. I'm glad my son's marrying today, Friday. Not that I'm superstitious but I got married on a Thursday so non-Saturday weddings seem to be catching in our family. In Egypt women pinch the bride for good luck What do we do? Well, we'll smile or wish them blessings and good luck and give them a feel-good hug. In England, we give a horseshoe for luck, and all the wedding cards have horseshoes on them, usually. I hadn't realised that that was particularly English until I was making my trivia wedding shower game a few weeks ago. How about this one? Peas are thrown at Czech newlyweds instead of rice. Perhaps green's a symbolic colour of fertility. I guess it is because of spring. The engagement and wedding rings are worn on the fourth finger of the left hand because it was thought a vein in that finger led directly to the heart. One of history's earliest engagement rings was given to Princess Mary, daughter of Henry VIII. She was two years old at the time. This is a lot of gold. Seventeen tons of the yellow precious metal are made into wedding rings each year in America. At least Americans are still getting married. In England, it doesn't seem to be at all the rage. The word partner features a lot, hardly even husband or wife. Queen Victoria started the trend of white dresses for the bride in the West in 1840 at her wedding to Prince Albert. Before then, the bride wore her best dress. Japanese brides have always worn white. Ancient Greeks and Romans thought a veil protected the bride from evil spirits. This and being carried over the threshold. Lindsay isn't taking any chances because she's wearing a veil. In the rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. The something old symbolizes continuity. You take your grandmother's lace hanky down the aisle with you and include her in your nuptials. The something blue symbolizes purity, fidelity, and love. And I don't know what Lindsay's wearing blue only that her bridal colours are orange and blue, like the Bird of Paradise flowers, so she's got that one covered. The bride stands to the groom's left in a Christian wedding because traditionally he needed his right hand to fight off other suitors. Really? At the wedding? On average, 7,000 couples marry each day in America, and that helps to account for the 17 tonnes of gold that goes into the wedding rings. Oh, and talking about the bride standing on the left of the groom, that's why in England we drive on the left because of jousting. We had to have our right hand free to joust. <laughs> These are happy times. Remember how excited we were when we were setting out to start our own lives? All the dreams and plans, the vows not to become like mum. But in the end, we do become like our parents. And I'm noticing my children are even becoming like my parents. I've told you about the sp- plate smelling both my youngest and my mother do, or did. The other day I saw some notes handwritten by my soon-to-be-married son, and it looked just like my brother's handwriting, whose looks just like my father's and uncle's. How odd is that? No one in England was even around when I was teaching Simon to read and write, or for that matter, ever much. (laughs) I told you we have a full house, my brother and his Two boys arrived on Wednesday and are here until next Tuesday. It's the first time the boys have been to America and 14 years since Vincent's been here. Our house has changed a lot. We don't have carpet anymore. We just have stained concrete, which is really nice and very cool to the touch. A little bit chilly in the winter, but lovely in the summer. And what else? We have an extra room, the room that I broadcast from. My office used to be my blue-eyed cowboy's. And, um, all glassed in and beautiful overlooking the field. What else is new in my house? Well, maybe new bits and pieces of furniture. Oh, and a new use for one of the bedrooms downstairs. Now our nest where we sit and watch our movies and the upstairs. I actually think the upstairs with the two extra rooms and the bathrooms new as well. So we have a spare room up there. So that's where one of the boys is staying and Vincent and the other boy are staying in the big front room so what else oh yeah and we've got the pool the boys have never seen the pool i think vincent's seen the pool it was here a couple of a couple of um had been here a couple of years before he came the last time and it's a shame it's so cold because they would have loved to have swum they would have been in there all the time i'm sure and of course our house is cavernous compared to theirs in england Anyway, I think it's time for me to leave you for another week. I'm so excited, and I'm trying to take my deep breaths and calm down. I'm off to be mother in law in just a few hours. What time is it? One o'clock, and the wedding's at five. So I'll be there at four, probably, so three hours. Oh, dear. And then I'm going to entertain my out-of-country guests for the weekend, so I don't quite know what we'll be doing. I'll be back greatly calmed down next week, same time, same place. So without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at Toginet Radio, my guest this week, Jennifer Miller, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Joel, Rosemary, Kathleen, Jane, Olivia, Tina, Sam and Nathaniel, my little nephews who are listening in and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Why don't you just stay tuned all the time to TokiNet and catch lots of great shows to glide you through your day. Take care this weekend and next week and be safe. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop.
0: Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenney on Toginet. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children ages 24 to 18 who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com.